You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is Andrew O'Hara. What's going on, Victor? Well, I am once again recording from the bunker underneath the Apple Insider headquarters, uh, Far East Edition, and I really appreciate you being available to join me here. Yeah, of course. No problem. Now, I should mention, if you love music and you love comedy, you love Weird Al Yankovic. Would you agree with that statement? I, I think that's a pretty fair statement. And if you've ever seen Weird Al play live, you know that he puts on an incredible show. So he just wrapped up his ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour, where for the first time he played his original songs. He, he you know, this, he's, he's apparently not performed those in concert before. He performed Dare to be Stupid, Buy Me a Condo, and, and more. And there were 77 performances on this tour, and every show was unique with a different set list. They were all professionally mixed and mastered, and they have Al's impromptu song, Stage Banter. With Stitcher Premium, not only do you get Weird Al's ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour, but you also get access to 21,000 hours of original content, exclusive bonus episodes of your favorite podcasts, ad-free archives, hundreds of stand-up comedy albums, and more. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash weirdal and use the promo code APPLE. I don't know. That's that's actually kind of interesting. That's, that's kind of We neat. should totally do that. Yeah. I think... I mean, we we should use that promo code. I, I think I, I think you're going to do that. I'm going to put aside my work for the day and start listening to some of that. Absolutely. But before we do that, we need to talk about the news. So Ming-Chi Kuo, who actually uh, totally left where he formerly was employed, I believe, and is now out doing his own thing. I'm not sure I have that entirely right, but I know that he left where he was being an analyst before. So... He is back again with the new report, and he's trying to answer investors' questions about the 2018 product lineup. That is the lineup that we're going to see for iPhones coming up this fall. The previous reports are still the same, but there are some new tidbits that we can get from this. Quo is expecting a new lower-priced MacBook Air, which he'd mentioned before in March. Also still expected is an Apple Watch that's approximately the same size but with a larger screen. So, you know, the, the same physical size on the wrist, but growing the border of the screen closer to the edge kind of thing. And in his most recent note, he also wrote about the 2018 phone lineup, where the previous claims are still there, but he expects that the innovations in the space aren't clear to the supply chain until it's going to be very close to release. And that kind of matches up with the reality we know, right? Yeah, I think all that sounds pretty believable. There's nothing too outlandish in, in this report. I mean, supply chain people tend to get orders for parts and for them to piece together what the capabilities are or what the product is out of that is not always easy. Basically, he, uh, he believes that Apple's growth is probably going to come from replacement demands in the high-end market and new users on the low end. So that, that we're going to see um, the replacement for the iPhone X, for example, being a growth item. Slow growth is there. We believe Apple is still the leading company in the consumer electronics sector and has surpassed its competitors by a wide margin in terms of innovative user experience and ecosystem development. The leading advantages will benefit when innovating with new applications. So the three models that are still speculated to arrive in the fall are two models with OLED screens, that's a 6.5 inch and a 5.8 inch, and a third that is an LCD screen at 6.1 inch. 
they all will probably have the TrueDepth camera array and use Face ID, but the LCD model will be singled out as a cost-effective model. And one of the things that you know we've seen people talk about has been the concept of a phone without 3D touch. I've been reading rumors about that kind of thing as well. And we think that Pegatron is identified as taking 60% of the LCD orders. Now, back in January, Tim Cook issued some caution. You know, reports in January claimed that Apple had cut its iPhone 10 production, citing slower than expected holiday claims. On February 1st, Apple revealed that it continued to prove the holiday quarter revenue year on year, although iPhone sales had dropped a little bit. Um, I think what we're seeing here is is just the kind of way the cycle is going to become, that Apple's making a transition among devices, adding to capabilities to devices, moving everyone off of home butt, moving everyone to face ID, and uh, at the same time, sort of straddling this, keeping older devices going, keeping older devices well-supported, and, and even in production. Do you agree with that kind of assessment? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, we, we see this where, where Apple is sort of straddling these two big things where Apple's making these, these brand new devices uh, and getting everything for the, you know, most of the U.S. market and most of the world market off of home buttons onto Face ID. At the same time, Apple just started mass production of the iPhone 6S in India. The, uh, the iPhone 6S is for sale there alongside the iPhone SE and Wistron opened up a facility there to manufacture it so that they can avoid import duties. Basically, things that are made in-country aren't subject to import duties, so they bring a factory there, and everyone's happy that there's now local employment there. The uh, the 6S and the 6S Plus will be made there, and um, that's, that's kind of interesting because the 6S is, gosh, a phone that was new when we started making this podcast a couple of years ago. I mean, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been quite a while, but I mean, at least we're still seeing Apple continue to support it. I mean, when iOS 12 launches this fall, at least we're still going to see it running on a lot of those. I mean, it runs on everything that iOS 11 ran on. So it's definitely interesting to see them really starting to try to support like those older handsets, not only just keeping them around, but like you said, keeping them in production and continuing to pump out more of them. Yeah, I I was really actually um, excited about the concept that iOS 12 will keep these older devices with good performance. I felt like they were both answering the question about, is Apple trying to make my phone slow from the battery debacle? And at the same time, saying that you don't have to worry, these phones aren't going away. They're going to feel as good as they possibly can. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a a statement against Android phones that don't get those updates. They're trying to push those updates you know, for phones as old as they can. When that 6S came out, I mean, we're several OS iterations later, and it definitely looks embarrassing when you look at the competition's ability to upgrade their phones. Yeah, well, I mean, that's two years on, right? There was the 7 and the 8 and, and 10 at that point. So it's it's a big deal. And I've been struggling with this Android thing for a while now. For example, I have a Nexus 6P that stops at Android 8. It won't get Android 9. Uh, I'm, I'm looking around here at Android TV stuff because people are trying to say now's the time to buy TVs. You know, the, the World Cup is going on, and, and so there's a lot of promos for that kind of thing. And you see TV manufacturers are shipping televisions with Android 6 on them. And, and well, Google's done a decent job of making it so that applications can run across different levels of the OS. I just, you know, you shake your head and you wonder why, because the... Um, 
Android TV on boxes is now in beta for Android 8. It's getting Oreo. A bunch of them skipped getting 7. Of course, 8 has big improvements in terms of being able to separate out manufacturer customizations from the OS build so that it's easier to do updates in the future. But only now we're getting 8 for Android TVs as betas when they're issuing 9 for the phones. It's kind of madness. It really drove me crazy before I was on Verizon, so I couldn't get like the original iPhones. And I had a, a couple droid handsets, and it it drove me bonkers when like an, a big update would come out that they'd announce. There's a whole thing, and then you know you don't get it. You have to wait for you had to wait for Google to send it to the manufacturer to the carrier before they would issue it. So I mean, if you wanted any of those new features, you really had to figure out a way to install it yourself. Um, but it drove me crazy. Like, I mean, obviously, I want to jump on the new stuff. You know, we're running the betas on our phone now. And I always want those new things. And for with Android, even when they were publicly released, it was impossible to get on my handsets. And it was it was really frustrating. Yeah, the only way to get a good Android update is to have a, a Pixel or, or a Nexus formerly. Yeah, a Google and phone. buy a fresh phone. Yeah. Yep. And and even then, you're not guaranteed anything at all, really. You know, the, the Nexus 6P is two years old, I believe, maybe three at the most, and and I've got eight on it and can't go to nine when Apple is sitting here supporting phones much older. Yeah, it, it seems like a problem, but what do you do? Well, what you do is if you're Apple, you go ahead and figure out how to get Foxconn and Wistron to open up factories around the world where you want them, right? So they've got the Wistron factory in India that we just mentioned, and Foxconn is opening up a big display factory in Wisconsin. Now, the, the interesting thing that's been in the news this week has been that the Foxconn factory is not really a sweet deal for the taxpayers there. And basically the, the thing is this is a $10 billion factory and the state and municipal sweeteners, they kicked in a billion dollars in benefits above an existing incentive package that they said was worth $3 billion. So that's $4 billion they're in for. And the state is responsible for covering 40% of the public bonds used to finance all the local expenses in the event that the project falls over. And it's it's just, it looks like, you know, that Foxconn got a really sweet deal out of this because the locals pledged a bunch, the state pledged a bunch, and what's Foxconn's exposure here? You know, it, it feels like they've managed to, to lessen their risk and put a lot of it on the state, which is an interesting position. Wouldn't you agree? I, I agree. I mean, they definitely were able to really lower their liability, but I mean, in the kind of the current U.S. political climate, there's a, a lot of interest in that U.S. manufacturing. So they kind of had, you know, a lot of leverage there. Like, oh, we'll do it, but you really got to want it. So they had to cough out a lot of stuff to make it happen. And I'm sure Wisconsin wanted to be the one that got such a huge manufacturing facility. I mean, they, they really wanted it. They had to put a lot down to get that to happen. And, and they got a lot of good press out of it. But yeah, it doesn't seem like quite the deal that people were thinking that it was. Yeah. So 30% of Foxconn's total investment in the plant, $1.5 billion in state income tax credits for the jobs created, $1.35 billion in credits for capital investment, $150 million in sales tax exemptions on construction materials, no corporate taxes on profits from sales on products made here, so it's it's going to cost the state about two hundred million a year, and in addition to that, another seven hundred sixty four million in incentives approved by Mount Pleasant and Racine County, one hundred thirty four million for the improvement of state highways and local roads near the site. So it's going to take what fifteen to fifty years to pay off 
via personal income taxes on the people working there. It's it's um, it, you know it's one of these things where without getting too far into politics, it's always a, a debate about how much the states should sweeten the deal, or counties and local governments should sweeten the deal for companies to lure them to come. You know, if if everybody does it, then you have to do it to compete. And that's, you know, why South Carolina has the BMW plant versus another state, for example. But if no one does it, then states just then, – then companies just go to whatever climate is most welcoming based on the, the default playing field. Of course, that's unrealistic because then all it takes is one state to break ranks and you end up where we are now. Yeah, pretty much. I know we saw that a ton with uh, when Amazon's looking for their second facility, just states bending over backwards, renaming towns, offering money, like so many things trying to get them to come there. And it's insane what they're doing just to to try to get them to move to a certain location. It, it really is. And there are tons of knock-on effects that people don't consider well uh, in terms of now that you've made this big draw, so your housing costs become more expensive in the area. And in turn, other costs become more expensive. And so now the people that lived there to begin with can no longer afford to live there. It, it sort of sets in motion things that change the whole landscape of a, of a city, the whole makeup of a city. And, and Seattle underwent that with Amazon and, and before Amazon underwent that with Microsoft where it really changed in a big way the affordability of living in Seattle, which changes the character of a place. Let's talk about headphones. Who, who's your favorite headphone manufacturer? Oh gosh, I don't even—I don't even know if I have a favorite headphone manufacturer. <laughs> I've got a lot. I, I switch between them all the time. There's right now. I'm really liking the um, the Librezone Zip Track. I think it's like the Track Plus or something like that. Really oh, nice I saw those CES, right? Those are the earbuds. Yeah, yeah, with the adaptive noise canceling. Those are really uh-huh. cool. So I've been really liking those. Um, We've been playing around with a new Master and Dynamic MW50 Plus that has the swappable yeah, those are Neil's favorite. ear cups. Yeah, those are those are some really, really nice headphones. Um, I actually have sitting on here my my Marshall headphones, which I they, they sound really cool, and they have a very distinct visual quality to them. They look really retro and stuff, so I, I love my Marshall headphones. I've got a lot of headphones going on here. Ah, I hate headphones. <laughs> I do. The the problem that I have with headphones is uh, frequently the clamping force of the headband. You know, if I'm wearing it for more than 10 minutes and it starts to hurt on my head because the clamping force is too tight, forget it. I'm wearing some Bowers & Wilkins uh, P5 Series 2 right now, and I had to put them over a wide stack of books to try and stretch the headband out enough that it was comfortable. My favorite set are a pair of what's called electrostats, and they're a sort of electrostatic module in combination with the neodymium module, mm-hmm. and they sound really good, and they're so comfortable. And But, you know, your favorite headphone company and mine, Beats, was slapped with a lawsuit. What was the lawsuit about? Well, I believe it was another one of the, you know, who I guess he claimed to be a co-founder, right, of actual beats and was this before they they started working with monster originally before they kicked monster away to join apple so beats started a long 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 time ago right the idea initially was said to have started in the early, in the, the mid 2000s so this guy Stephen lamar 
says that and in his lawsuit, he says that he had this idea for a headphone brand endorsed by celebrities, and he brought it to Dre and, and Jimmy Yvine in 2006. And Beats founding was influenced by Apple even before it bought Beats in 2014. Robert Brunner, the former Apple director of industrial design, joined the firm Pentagram, was involved in the initial talks, as was Apple retail VP Jerry McDougall. Uh, Beats ultimately ultimately liked to distribute his headphones through Monster instead of Apple at that time. And the partners had a falling out. They reached a settlement under which Yuvine and Dre would retain ownership of the brand named Beats by Dre and get 20% royalty on gross sales. Lamar and Jibe would cede intellectual property rights for a 5% royalty rate and an equity interest in Beats that was due them for contributions to the business model, product concepts, brand identity, iconic designs, things like that. And, and the lawsuit was just about how much Dre and, and uh, even owned in royalties, including profits gleaned from the $3 billion acquisition sale in 2014. So he was seeking more than $100 bucks for his contributions. And the defendants, both of whom testified at the trial, argued that he was only entitled to royalties from one headphone model, the Beat Studio, the first model. The thing is, when you go to court, especially when you go in front of a jury, you you leave yourself open to results that may happen differently than you think they'll go. And so a jury found Lamar was entitled to $25,247,350 in royalties related to three models, the Studio 2 Remastered, the Studio 2 Wireless, and the Studio 3, all of which are models that are, of course, based on the original studio. So he, he didn't get anything from like the Solo or the Solo HD or, or any of the other ones. But for the studio, for that first model, the, uh, the over-ear set, they went for all of them. Now, in a related case, Apple filed a countersuit against him also in 2014 for claiming co-founder status in order to launch his own headphone brands during a period when new headphone brands were launching on a regular basis. That suit was actually dismissed in 2015. So uh, it's, it's interesting. You don't always win on every suit, but sometimes you win and you win reasonably big. Now, this case is not the only case concerning Beats and its founders. Monster Products, their original manufacturing partner, also sued Beats and Apple in early 2015. And that suit is one that's still going on. We haven't heard the last of it. Monster is, uh, is Noel Lee's pro- you know, project. It's his company. And he, he's done crazy things like he had a Super Bowl commercial. You remember that one? No, I don't. Oh, my gosh. No, he was in this year's Super Bowl in the commercials. They ran, Monster ran a commercial, and it was really a weird one because it, it sort of – it told the story through flashback of a, a kid acting out Noel's life story, acting out Noel Lee's life story of, of founding Monster and, and stuff like that. And then the end shot was of Noel Lee himself, the man, actually driving the kid playing Noel Lee around – uh, as if he were his own chauffeur and, and you know, f- uh, future self talking to past self saying, you've come a long way, kid, or you've got a long way to go, kid, or something like that. I can't remember. It's been since January since I've thought about it. But it was a really weird thing. And uh, and I met him at CES. He's kind of an interesting dude. He, he Everywhere he goes is on a custom-painted Segway. I mean – So okay. we were in a club and, and Noel Lee, who's a big dude, rolls up on his Segway with, with – hot rod flames pointed, painted on the Segway fenders. And that's that's the kind of guy that we're talking about here is an interesting dude. And they launched a cryptocurrency called Monster Money not too long ago. 
And and so, you know, we're going to get into talking about monster cryptocurrency at some point here, but not today. Today we're talking about the 25 mil that was awarded to this fellow who uh, brought the concept to Dre in 2006. What do you think about that stuff, man? I mean, it seems like he definitely, it, it definitely got split in the middle. I think, I think that seems pretty fair considering what they were both asking for. I mean, you know, Lamar is looking for a whole lot more out of that giant acquisition that he got in. Um, but if they're going to buy that, really the only thing that he came up with was the studio. I think it's fair that he gets compensation for all of the, the studio models and not all of the, the huge line of beat stuff that's, that's come since then. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and especially since those studio models have the same ID, more or less. They've, those have pretty much remained unchanged since other than yeah. you know, a few small changes, but pretty much the same. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your Marshall headphones a minute ago. So, so you've got a review coming up that we're going to publish eventually. And by eventually, I mean probably around Saturday or so of a Marshall speaker. Yes. Tell me about this thing a little bit. So I've got a couple of them here. I've got the Stanmore and the Acton. And these are their wireless multi-room versions. So they've had their standard Bluetooth ones out for a while, which I was definitely a fan of. have a couple of them already. And they came out with these wireless versions late towards last year. And they have AirPlay as well as Chromecast and other stuff built in, which is really nice. But I was really interested in the way they did their multi-room things. And what's slightly frustrated me is they have not committed to bringing AirPlay 2. They're kind of taking the approach of, we have our own multi-room solution and it's better than AirPlay 2 because you don't have to use your phone to toggle between, you know, single and multi-room options. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think they 100% Okay, okay so hold up because I, I have yet to experience these guys. Tell me what it is that they're doing to do multi-room because you mentioned that they've got Chromecast built in and Chromecast does multi-room. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned AirPlay and, and AirPlay on its own, AirPlay 1 is not exactly multi-room, but never mind. So how are they doing multi-room? Are they using the Chromecast stuff that's built in to pull it off? Or are they doing their own flavor even though they've got Chromecast? They've got a lot of, of Google stuff in there. I mean, when you have to set these up originally, you have to go through the Google Home app. So they could be using the Chromecast to do it, but I'm not certain. They claim it's like their own way of doing it. But they have a physical button on the actual speakers that you can press to toggle between single and multi. And whenever you put them into multi, they just link up and they all start playing the same thing. And it it does work really, really well. It's kind of awesome. I mean, if you have a bunch of these around, you just press the button or you can do it from your phone. Um, In the Marshall multi-room app, you can toggle between single and multi for each individual speaker. But you just hit the button on there so you don't even need your phone if you're playing something through one of them switch it to multi, switch the rest to multi, and they all start playing the same thing. So in that regard, it works really, really well. But what I was annoyed with was they seem to ignore the other benefits of AirPlay 2. They focus only on that multi-room option and act like that's the only thing that's going on. And I think there's a lot more to AirPlay 2. So while their multi-room stuff does work well, it works really well, really simple to use, set up, very easy to understand. I still wish they would put airplay 2 in there and right now they still just they keep putting it off saying our multi-room solution is better we're still thinking about airplay 2 okay so so what do you want them to do that airplay 2 does well there's a couple things that airplay do, airplay 2 does 
other than just multi-room. So one, they have a bigger buffer in there, which does take up more onboard memory, but you're gonna get a lot less drops in audio, which still happens with AirPlay 1 and even with their current solution. I definitely had a couple instances in their multi-room setup where like audio for literally just a split second though, it would drop out from one of the speakers and then pick back up. And it can be a little, it doesn't happen often, but it happened a few times during my testing in the last couple of weeks, just dropped out from one side and then pop back up. And using a bigger buffer is going to stop that stuff from happening. Second of all, especially for HomeKit users, AirPlay 2 and HomeKit support. Those speakers will show up in the Home app. They can be assigned to different rooms and you can use Siri to control the playback. So I can just ask Siri to play um, my favorite Eagle songs in the living room and it can pop up on my living room speakers and start playing. And I would love to be able to do that and not, I mean, I could do it from my HomePod and send it to my other AirPlay 2 speakers, which would be nice if it included the Marshall ones. And those are not things that they can do with just AirPlay 1. All right. So here's here's my request of you, which is two, two things. One is if you had a Chromecast audio device and they're 30 bucks, you know, could you put one of those in and use it with Marshall's multi-room stuff, which would be interesting and indicative of whether or not they're using Chromecast to pull it off. And the second part would be you trying the Google Assistant app to control the multi-room stuff because they obviously have Chromecast built in and seeing how that goes. And you can use the Google Assistant app from your uh, iPhone. Yeah, and we're still finishing up the review. Um, Definitely still a lot more. I haven't jumped into all of our audio tests that I want to run yet. So we're definitely going to track that down a little bit more and see if they are. I have a few other multi-room speakers that claim to have that multi-room support. Um, one's the Lotson, which is a new one coming from Urban Ears. So that does that pretty much uses the same exact thing um, for their multi-room stuff. So I'm going to definitely be testing out to see if that can interface with the Marshall ones. Um, and if it does, that's a, a great benefit to their multi-room, but it still doesn't solve the issues that we're seeing without AirPlay 2. Yeah. One of the other things that I do when I'm audio testing is to put a microphone at a at a set distance from the speaker and to play back specific frequencies through the speaker and then see how those frequencies are detected with the mic to uh, be able to to get a proper response curve, you know, to see what frequencies are actually playing and at what volume levels. And And that gives me a feeling for how I feel about the speaker compared to other things that I've got. Yeah, I've I had I've used their their Acton, their Stanmore. Um, I can't remember what their little guy is. Um, Stockwell, yeah. maybe. I've used them for a while, and I I really do like the audio that comes out of them. I think it sounds really nice, and I really like their controls that you have. It's not a ton of control; you can control the treble and the bass, but I do like that you have some degree of variation there to really tune into your taste. Yeah, and I gotta say, you know, have you tried it next to a HomePod? Because that's what our listeners' question is gonna be. Oh, absolutely! I definitely have. I think the HomePod is a little more bass heavy. I mean, that's the biggest one. Um, and it's probably my biggest complaint about the HomePod. I hate the bass on it, which I know is going to be a divisive statement because a lot of people like it. But I listen to a lot of podcasts um, like this one and I watch a lot of uh, TV through there and it is just way too messy um, to work with TV. It just it's it's too, too crazy. doesn't work. Yeah. Well, we will look for that review, and I'm hoping every one of our listeners gets a chance to read it. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing about it myself. And tell me more about that multi-room and try out the Google Assistant and see if that's what they're doing. Because it's it's always interesting to know how they're pulling off that stunt. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
In other court news, because we were talking about courts a minute ago, the Apple versus Samsung patent trial is finally and completely over. I still don't believe it. I don't, I don't, I, no, there's no way. You can cry yourself to sleep at night. You can rock yourself to sleep at night knowing that Qualcomm is still going on. Okay. I feel a little bit better now. I'll give that you that another one. major yes. long-going lawsuit is continuing. Okay, good. So both parties here, Samsung and Apple, agreed to settle any remaining claims and counterclaims. As a result, the court denied Apple's motion for supplemental damages as well as pre- and post-judgment interest, according to documents filed through the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. Samsung, for its part, is giving up motions to invalidate Apple's 915 patent and seek alternative relief and toss a recent verdict. So the exact terms of the deal have not been made public, but after days of deliberating, a federal jury handed down its most recent decision regarding the Apple v. Samsung case, declaring the South Korean tech giant owes $533,316,606 for infringing on Apple's iPhone design patents. Another $5.3 million was awarded for two utility patents. And Samsung lawyer John Quinn told Judge Lucy Coe that he had some issues with the verdict that would be addressed in post-trial motions. Based on these filings, it appears that Quinn's concerns have been addressed or dismissed. They've taken care of it. This is over. It's still hard to believe after all these years that it's actually over. And it seems I'm I'm like emotionally invested in this trial at this point. And it feels like almost like a for us onlookers, it's almost like a unsatisfying outcome. Like I want to know like, OK, Apple lost, Apple won, um, how much was owed by either party, whatever it's going to be. I wanted like that outcome. And now we're left like almost like a cliffhanger. Like, no, we don't well, know look, how it look. ended. I mean, we sort of look. Apple originally wanted a full one billion dollars for the infringement, and Samsung had previously advised it was willing to pay twenty-eight mil. And like happens in these kinds of things, right? That's somewhat of a negotiation. You you throw out one number, they throw out another number, and you land somewhere in the middle. And you know what you did get out of this was you got you know Adam Ball and Susan Kare. Um, arguing about the merits of Apple's design patents. You got people siding with Apple's legal team in viewing granted designs as applicable. You you got a lot out of this. And at the end of the day, you don't have to know the exact numbers and you don't have to know that that Apple crushed their foes and, you know, defeated them victoriously in battle. Right. You, you don't have to have that kind of satisfaction because at the end of the day, they're still actually business partners. Right. Samsung is making displays. Samsung wants to make the A13 chip. They, they have to work together despite this stuff. So this was just business. This was literally just about how much money was going to be paid and how much was going to happen. So they didn't do it again kind of thing. Absolutely. Right? We've, I mean, it's been it's been enjoyable to read about whether you side with Apple or or Samsung, you know, I wasn't convinced that Apple really needed to win a billion dollars from that original settlement. Um, but it definitely has given us a lot to read. We've seen a lot of, uh, you know, expert testimony from, you know, original designers and stuff come out. It's been very interesting to, to read and see over all of these years. So I'm glad it's come to a close, but it's a little bit bittersweet. You know, if you if you want to be really unsatisfied, if you want to be really dissatisfied, the closing arguments are what you need to go over. So Apple's lawyer, Joe Mueller, reiterated expert witness points saying, the fact you can pull apart a phone means absolutely nothing. The question is, what did they apply those designs to? It's not a pane of glass. It's not a display screen that doesn't show a GUI. It's the phone. By contrast, Samsung's lawyer, John Quinn, said to the jury, 
The Apple design patents do not cover anything on the inside of the phones. They don't even cover the entire outside. Under the law, Apple's not entitled to profits of any article of manufacture to which the design was not applied. So their, their closing arguments were still pretty much at loggerheads on this. That they were able to agree and conclude this thing is probably very smart because they were paying tons in legal fees just keeping this thing going. And you know Judge Lucy Coe has got to be tired of it too. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she is. So, you know, she is forever going to be known as the judge for Apple at this point or the judge, the judge on this case at this point. So it's good to have moved on, I think. I, I think it's definitely good. Now, some, some joker wrote an article on our site, some terrible guy, I don't know, about third-party remote platform support for Siri and iOS 12 and tvOS 12. You, you got anything to say about that rude person, <laughs> that, that terrible reprobate of an individual? Um, I do not have a single nice thing to say about him. What about his article? <laughs> well, first of, first of all, let, let our listeners in on the joke. Who is that guy? Okay, that was me. I definitely wrote that. I wrote that <laughs> earlier this week. So thank you very much, Victor. Um, what, what, what are you trying to teach us about here? Tell us, tell us what's going on. Yeah. So of all the things that kind of came out during the keynote at Apple's dev conference was this one kind of line just stuck with me. And it was just uh, Federighi mentioning that the remotes for the Apple TV, that you they would now work with more third-party remotes and it would even include Siri support. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I mean, even since then, we've learned that remotes are actually going to be a new category of HomeKit products, which opens up even more possibilities. But the, the problem is, at least right now, we know very little about what capabilities are going to be possible here. And it really got me just started thinking of all the different ways that this could pan out. Um, probably a lot more, you know, profound than they're actually going to be. But Apple's released very little information about what we can expect here. The only thing we really know is that many different companies like Savant and Creston and Control 4 have all more or less signed on to support this. And you'll be able to use their remote systems to control the Apple TV, including using Siri. So just using that as a base, we can automatically know a few things, such as now these third-party remotes can control AirPlay 2 speakers and the HomePod and all stuff like that. And it just kind of can branch out about what we can really expect here. And I think it's going to be a lot more of a big deal than it kind of seemed during the keynote. Yeah. So Control 4, if if you have a Control 4 system, you've A, spent a ton of money and B, a ton of money on license fees. But Control 4 lets you control pretty much everything in the house. It acts as a home media server. It acts as a receiver. It can do all of the home automation stuff. And in the past, if you had a Control 4 and wanted to control an Apple TV, you programmed the infrared remote codes into it so that it could go ahead and blast IR at your Apple TV. Or you you had it imitate the Apple TV remote through Bluetooth. It was possible to go ahead and have it control an Apple TV in the past. I think what's really new here is being able to control all the HomeKit devices and really be able to do Siri support so that through your Crestron, you can, uh, you know, use your Siri remote or, or Siri from HomePod and access your Crestron media library. It, it kind of goes both directions, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what we'll be able to do. I mean, obviously, anyone who's you know followed the site and our YouTube channel for a while knows how much HomeKit stuff that I love to talk about. And being able to either use these third-party remotes, I mean, it doesn't have to be something as high-end as these, as the Control 4 and the Crescent stuff. It can be more consumer level, like the, like the Logitech Harmony. 
we'd be able to hopefully see kind of integrate with this. But so those things could control your HomeKit devices. Those could show up on your screen and control them just like on your iOS device. But we also could see maybe like IR blasters working through HomeKit. So if we had, you know, hopefully nice working versions of those compared to some of the really cheap ones, but I can see, you know, Elgato coming out with an Eve IR blaster that could control your TV or a fan or an AC unit, um, anything that works through a remote. And you could include those in scenes, which could be a big deal because you could finally have your TV turn off with your good night scene. So there's a lot of ways this could play out. Absolutely. And, and, you know, controlling home entertainment is one of those things people like to do as part of home automation. Being able to set the input on a receiver and turn on the video source and all of these things is is obnoxious to do across four or five remotes. And even HDMI CEC doesn't take care of it. So Apple TV and HomeKit being able to control those things gets better. You know, it's one of the things that Neil Hughes has been doing using HomeBridge to talk to Harmony to try and pull that off. Over here, I've been using Alexa with a Harmony Remote Elite setup to be able to do the same kind of thing. Seeing that finally talk to HomeKit properly would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I would be really excited. Um, I knew in my HomeBridge tinkering, that was one of the big things that a lot of people did was set up IR blasters or add the Harmony control. They're clearly wanted by people. And I guess my biggest concern right now, before I get ahead of myself with all these lofty expectations, is when we're actually going to see anything. I mean, when we saw Apple add sprinklers and water control valves to iOS 11, that didn't ship until I think iOS uh, 11.2 or 11.3 earlier this year. So that was super delayed. And then you also have the just the time to market for an average HomeKit accessory. It can take easily a year before they get everything figured out. Um, also, I did this piece earlier this week on changes to HomeKit in iOS 12. And one of those things is they actually have a wholly new revamped dev kit for those MFI partners that's supposed to drastically cut down those cycle times. So they say you can get a prototype going within maybe a week and release time can be, you can have a functional you know product to market in maybe three months compared to the year or more that it's been taking now. So I'm hoping one, that Apple actually includes this in iOS 12. And then two, we actually see products hit the market quicker rather than a year and a half from when Apple actually announces it. Right. And that dev kit, was that talking about the software authentication as well? Yeah, basically just what they're using to, yeah, to set all that stuff up. A lot more work is done through that dev kit than it was in the past. And I think it just does a lot more of those HomeKit layers, um, hopefully cutting down the development time on new HomeKit products. Nice. Very nice. Cool. Well, I think we are pretty much out of time. That sounds good. I've talked about all I want to talk about. Have you talked about anything you want to talk about? No, I think I'm good. I mean, I'm working on those. I get those reviews to to finish up so everyone can check uh, the written review as well as the video review uh, this weekend. Fantastic. Well, that's all we got going on here. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. No problem. Anytime. Where can people find you on the Internet? Well, they can follow me at Andrew underscore OSU over on Twitter or obviously on the Apple Insider YouTube channel and uh, the website. And I'm at VMarks on Twitter. I encourage people to go ahead and email us at news at appleinsider.com. We are happy to take questions. We love when you leave us reviews, and we love when you ask us questions. We will be back next week with more on the Apple Insider podcast. <laughs>